Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. I'm Shuvaloy Majumdar, Monk Senior Fellow for Foreign Policy here at the McDonald Laurier Institute in Ottawa. It's not as cold as it's been for the last few months, but I'm so excited to be joined by my dear and wonderful friend. He's in from New Delhi, Dhruva Jaishankar, Fellow for Foreign Policy from Brookings, India, one of the country's foremost minds on what is happening to uh, to Indians, to India, what the significance of India's uh, politics are for the region. He's one of the most prolific writers. If you can follow him on Twitter, I uh, highly recommend you do that. Email him, get on his mailing list. This guy's one of the most prolific writers I've ever encountered, and I'm so happy to welcome you here to Ottawa. How are you? Uh, great, thanks. It's my first time in Ottawa. Are you freezing yet? Uh, no, not, it's not not too bad. It's, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> this region is not unknown to you. You've been in yes. Boston, you've been in D.C. You're, I, you're I, went to, I went to college in Minnesota, so it's, it's actually quite familiar to Minnesota, me. Some people yeah. say Minnesota is kind of Canadian. I don't yeah. know if I agree with that entirely. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, you had a pretty interesting career before you joined Brookings India. Where were you? Uh, I worked at the German Marshall Fund for seven years. Yes. And then prior to that, I worked at Brookings uh, in Washington. Uh, but also worked for a while in the media in India and mm -hmm. uh, in, in television news. So I have a slightly varied background in that sense. So you're not fake news at all? As, at the time, we thought we were not fake news. <laughs> we, uh, I think the media has changed a lot in the last uh, 15 years or so. And your time at German Marshall Fund would have exposed you to the Atlantic Order. Yes, very much so. Yeah. So I was working at an organization that was focused on the Atlantic Order, except uh, I was brought in in part to help build up an Asia, a program on Asia. Uh, so it was uh, great for me because uh, it allowed me to also work on a sort of pan-Asian uh, area and, and also look at how developments in Asia, whether it was China or India or Japan or Southeast Asia, was affecting uh, the transatlantic relationship, which it was in various ways. Very much so. And when you think about the Indo-Pacific future to come, it's a fascinating perspective yeah. that you bring to your work in yeah. Delhi. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah Incredible. Well, I want, to jive, I want to dive right into that thing, because I think this is a really timely conversation to have. Canada has been experiencing a seismic shift in its own relationship with China. Mm -hmm. You've undoubtedly been following the news of uh, the two Canadian detainees that have been essentially kidnapped by the Communist Party of China. And that's kind of awoken many Canadians to the realities of the regime of China that has been uh, acting in a particular way. There's been a, a lot of happy talk in this country over the last years on China's rise. So from your perspective, sitting in Delhi, looking at this massive booming neighbor. What's your take on what's been happening in China? Uh, let me start by saying I'm not a China specialist, but I have spent much of the last three years basically traveling around the Indo-Pacific from Australia to India, Hanoi to Honolulu, Tokyo to Taipei, and uh, Kuala Lumpur to Colombo. And, and in all of these places, you hear some very similar concerns about China's rise. I think we should start off by thinking that Acknowledging that China's rise, economically at least, has been beneficial to the region as a whole. It's been the primary driver of growth. For many of these economies, they have uh, major exports to um, to China, particularly resource exports. You know, the likes of Japan and South Korea and Malaysia uh, and Taiwan are all integrated into supply chains with with China. But I think there are four broad areas where they're just serious concerns, and those concerns have only become more pronounced in the last few years under Xi Jinping. The first is basically the opacity of decision-making in communist single-party regime that you, you have in China. And this would not have made much of a difference when China was more inward-looking and isolated as it was uh, for many years, uh, for many decades in the middle of the, the 20th century. But today, as China makes decisions that have global ramifications, that is obviously a great source of concern. It, you know, it's not as if the United States always makes decisions that the rest of the world is happy with. 
But there is, you know, we, we know which official is making those decisions. We know, in many cases, how to lobby Congress to blunt some of the uh, the excesses if, if need be. And I think this is in stark contrast to, to China, where, you know, sometimes these decisions happen. You have no way of, of reconciling it sometimes, except at the leadership level, and sometimes even not, not even then. So I think that that's like the first area of concern. The second is sort of non-market economic policies. And we're seeing this play out in, in terms of distortions as a result of the heavy hand of the state, even in nominally private enterprises in, in China, national champions, connections between national espionage and commercial theft, uh, including intellectual property, and in terms of unsustainable debt that has accumulated over the particularly since the 2015 stimulus. And that debt is now being exported in the form of the Belt and Road Initiative. So I think that, that sort of second sort of non-market economic principles is also coming to, to haunt China. The third area is in terms of territorial revisionism. So China has territorial disputes with Japan, South Korea, four countries in, in Southeast Asia, India, and Bhutan. China's not alone in having territorial disputes, but in all of these cases, China's been using uh, nominally civilian tools to change the facts on the ground. So whether it's dredging in the South China Sea, whether it is road building in the Himalayas and in Bhutan, which... Uh, Invited Indian interventionism it was a couple a huge years ago. Conflict. Yeah, it was it was a it was a really tense standoff for two months. Wasn't it the Indian. first time that a, a government was able to confront Chinese BRI and have them stop? So the road building, there had been two prior in 2013, 2014. There were two prior confrontations, but that was between India and China. Uh, this was very unusual. The, the incident in 2017 at a, a place called Doklam, because it's it's in territory disputed between Bhutan and China, right next to India, uh, right next to an Indian military outpost. In fact. And uh, the Chinese were building a road in this disputed territory, which would have brought them to the edge of a ridge, which would allow them to hypothetically have control over uh, a very sensitive... Military uh, strategic position. Uh, very, yeah, very strategic uh, position. And uh, the uh, Indian forces basically opted to intervene. It led to this standoff between Indian and Chinese forces that lasted for two months. And in that time, we saw a lot of warmongering from China, uh, which we'd not seen in the past. Finally, the, the situation was diffused, but I think it has left a bit of a sour taste in, in, in the mouths of, of many countries. And, and I think a lot of people were, were looking to see what would happen in this particular instance. Uh, but I think the significance is that Indian forces decided to intervene in a third country. It was not territory claimed by India, but on behalf of Bhutan. Um, I think the fourth reason is kind of a slight erosion we're seeing in global norms. And I think this has implications for everyone, including Canada. And whether it's Chinese attitudes towards outer space, cybersecurity and internet governance, even the Arctic and Antarctic treaty systems, which we're starting to see a little bit of an erosion of non-proliferation. Um, so in all of these cases, you have China on paper supposed to be abiding by these commitments. Uh, oh, freedom of navigation overflight is another one I forgot. So you know, China is a member of UNCLOS and the Antarctic treaty system and you know, a host of other, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the NPT, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. But we have seen uh, recent incidents of, of China undermining these institutes from within. And that, I think, is also another cause for concern. So I think collectively, these are just some of the things that you hear, again, with different emphasis, whether you're in New Zealand or in, in Europe or in Japan, we are, we're all feeling the effects of this. That's a, that's a heck of a perspective, comprehensively describing exactly what's been an editorial view of many, which is that China is in it to rebuild and remake an international order in their own image rather than to try and you know, participate in the existing rules-based order that has seen so much prosperity come in China. Taking a step back into India itself, mm -hmm. listeners would be very curious, I think, to learn what's been going on. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about 
macroeconomic reform in India, mm-hmm. under the leadership of Prime Minister Narendra Modi. It is an essential and rising economy, perhaps some would say the fastest growing economy on earth. The elections are upon Indians now. I think that the Election Commission announced dates. It's a fairly complicated process, so mm-hmm. I will not venture into trying to describe it to listeners. Uh, but I'd be curious, you know, looking at India in the context of this Indo-Pacific, what's going to happen in the upcoming elections for May? Let me start off by saying Indian elections are impossible to predict. The consensus view before the elections, the last three general elections, uh, was somewhat off. For example, last time and, and five years ago, I think most people predicted that Prime Minister Modi would win, but uh, underestimated the margin of victory. Which is quite massive. Which was which was quite massive. Let me just say that the general consensus view today is that Modi will probably be back. The BJP uh, will undoubtedly be the largest party. But I think the expectation is that he, they may lose some seats. Um, the party very unusually ha- uh, had an absolute majority on its own and didn't require coalition partners. But we may see them having to cobble together, uh, be on a strong footing to co- cobble together a uh, coalition uh, in May. So I think that that's the general consensus, but again, anything can happen. There are reasons, including the electoral calendar and, and, and other reasons um, of campaign finance and things, to suggest that Modi has a bit of an edge over the opposition. Yeah. But again, uh, it, it's always hard to predict these things exactly. I don't see, whatever happens in the elections, I don't see the broader direction of India's role in the world changing, or at least not fundamentally reversing. I think we'll almost certainly see some changes around the margin. But you know, we have seen pretty much consistency since 1991, since the end of the Cold War, India's liberalization, uh, economic liberalization. We have seen a gradual consistency in um, India's outreach to the United States uh, and and the West, including Canada, including Europe and and, uh, countries like that. A greater focus on economic diplomacy and and, and development, a greater sensitivity to a balance of power in, in, in the region, continued Problems of Pakistan, which which I'm happy to get into, mm-hmm. but also India seeking a, high, a, a better representation at the global high table, right. uh, including on many of the issues I, I described right. earlier. Well, you know, you mentioned India's economic liberalization. I think India has made some very significant gains on that in the last years, particularly in the formalization of its informal economy, mm-hmm. looking at bankruptcy issues. However, 49, 50% of Indian labor is farm-based labor. Mm-hmm. It is on the precipice of going through a massive change, but that was Canada over 120 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, less than 5% of Canadian labor works in the farms. There's a state structure support to Indian agriculture that I think is a bit of a third rail when you yes. think about it in the context of politics, as well as India's energy needs, which are vast, to fuel an economy of 1.2, 1.3 billion people mm-hmm. growing the way that the pace that it has. Do you think that these issues of agricultural reform or India's energy security are going to be part of the debate as Indian voters go to the polls in May? I'm not sure. I mean, people will vote on a whole bunch of things and it'll depend in part on region to region. But you know, I think there's a, a positive and negative way of looking at, at India's growth story. So on the positive end, end of the ledger, I think we are in a period of very sustained, a bad year is 5% growth. Uh, if only we could have a bad uh, yeah, year. Yeah, right. Uh, a good year is eight percent growth, right? So, so that's the kind of rough window we're operating in. Obviously, you know, India could do better in many respects, but uh, you know, the last few years we've seen the high six percent, low seven percent uh, range, which is which is not bad. So by the end of this year, India will be the fifth largest economy. It'll surpass France and the UK. It's already. I have to say, every time an Indian scholar talks about surpassing the UK, there's a sense of pride. Uh, there's there's a little bit of sense of pride. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this will not have happened for a hundred and. 150 years, actually. You know, India is already the third largest energy market um, after the US and China. It will soon be the third largest automobile market. So, I mean, it, you, you take it almost any measure and it, it'll generally be 
on, on a lot of economic issues and, and market issues, it'll really be the third largest economy after the U.S. and China. So I think that that's you know that that's a reality that that India is now trying to deal with, and it means a kind of different type of relationship with the rest of the world. Um, now, on the negative side of the ledger, um, I mean, the Indian government put out a document called the Economic Survey. They do it every year, but but last year's was particularly good, and they identified four big problems facing India. One is lack of agricultural reform. So you still have hundreds of millions of farmers who are um, each own very small land holdings. And on the plus side, they actually own their own land. Uh, they're, they're very autonomous, but at the same time, they're not really competitive in a global marketplace. Very much dependent on government subsidies, uh, including th- things like fertilizer and irrigation and stuff like that. And these are election issues that parties yeah. take to the countryside. Yes, but it often it takes the form of uh, promising greater subsidies, oh, right? Great. Yeah, so, <laughs> which is which is politically smart, but but economically, not not economically right, yeah. not very sustainable, right? So, so I think some of the question is how can you square that circle? I think a second issue is lack of a quality human capital. So you know you have this youth bulge. You have you know every year uh, another. 15 to 20 million people turn 18 and enter the workforce. That's almost half the size of Canada. Yeah, right. Basically, that I mean, so that's the scale, and so you have to provide you know job opportunities for them. But you know, the the problem is even though basic education has improved, so you're seeing more people you know finishing out school and and going to college, the quality of education has not necessarily improved, and that's why you still see a half a million Indian students around the world, including many in Canada, mm-hmm. over a hundred thousand in Canada. That's why you, you see this. But there is a real problem about the quality of, of human capital. Two other um, issues are actually less problems with India, more uh, realities of, of uh, external realities. One is uh, we've seen a kind of slowdown or flattening of global trade in the last few years. So India isn't in as advantageous a position as it was a few year, you know, 10 years ago to take advantage of that. And then the last one is actually increasing productivity gains at this time, largely driven by technology. So we may see this phenomenon in India, which many people are worried about, of growth taking place, investment coming in, but that not really actually leading to, to jobs. And that will be a really sensitive political issue. It could have second order consequences for law and order and, and things like that. So these, I think, are, are known to the Indian government as being major concerns, but are very difficult to, to address because of politics in many cases. Indeed. In fact, India's economy, if you're saying, if what you're saying is right, that technology will pose a great opportunity for almost a leapfrogging of India in this fourth industrial revolution. Do you think that, you know, technologies that China is providing, questions like Huawei, uh, other telecom investments, investments, Chinese track record when it comes to intellectual property rights. You know, how does India as a democracy wrestle with having a neighbor that sometimes has exactly the opposite intention? Right. So, you know, I think this is something that the Indian body politic is going to be wrestling with for some time, yes. because in many cases, they're short term gains to be had by um, engaging economically with China. So China is India's largest trade partner. It's very much one-way trade. India has a trade deficit of about $60 billion with China. It only exports about $15 billion to China. So it's very much one-way trade. But in many cases, China can provide goods at a price point that make them very competitive in the Indian market that firms from other countries, whether it's Japan or Europe or or North America, just cannot do that. So there's often these short-term economic benefits to, to continuing engagement with China. I mean, just to take one example, I think the th- top three largest smartphone uh, providers by, by units sold in India today are Chinese. So they've totally crowded out the Apples and uh, to a lesser degree, the Samsungs of this world. So, you know, there's always that, that imperative. At the same time, India is actually was ahead of the curve in terms of uh, highlighting some of the security concerns uh, related to Chinese companies. And so in 2009, 10, 
there were already concerns being articulated about Huawei and the lack of transparency in its own governance structure. That's a decade ago. A decade ago. So India, India was actually calling, in some ways, calling attention to this before it was popular, mm-hmm. but also then decided to let Huawei into the Indian market under some very strict uh, conditions. So I think these choices will will have to be faced, and there'll be contending pressures from the private sector, from the security establishment, to address these concerns in different ways. We're, we're struggling with that in Canada as well. For our Canadian listeners, would you have some guidance as to how to think about Huawei or Chinese tech? Look, I, I, I don't know if there's are there any easy answers to this, which is why I think we're all confronting this the same issue. Mm-hmm. You know, I think stressing just overall, I mean, the reason I highlighted those common concerns about China right. is stressing that, you know, working with China is not necessarily a bad thing, as long as China can be made to conform to certain accepted rules and norms. And I think there are two different ways of looking at it. One is actually, you know, legal issues, right? So um, whether it's stealing of IP or, or other concerns. But there's also an element of reciprocity. And what we've seen sometimes is China doing things that are perfectly legal in a democratic society in, in the U.S. or Australia, where I was just um, I was just there a, a few days ago. Mm-hmm. A lot of what they were doing in terms of what's been called political interference was actually totally legal under Australian law at the time. But there's a lack of reciprocity. You know, I mean, Australia can't do the same thing in China. Right. So I think we need to distinguish between these two kinds of uh, ways of holding China to account. One is respecting the laws and of, of uh, wherever they operate. And the second is highlighting lack of reciprocity in many cases. You know, just to give you one example on, in terms of how this is playing out geopolitically, India has boycotted the Belt and Road Initiative mm-hmm. on the grounds that financing is not sustainable, that the bidding processes for contracts is not transparent, that it doesn't respect local environmental laws, it doesn't improve the quality of local labor. And so India has highlighted these concerns for, for some time. Would you suggest it's essentially weaponized commerce? I, I think there, there are concerns. I mean, that, that's a very strong way of putting it. But I think there are those, those concerns are certainly there. At the same time, though, India has worked with China at the AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, where India is the second largest shareholder. And I think believes that is a forum that China can be held to account. It has a board. It has voting share. There, there. Various countries have voting shares, and so it draws a distinction between these two kinds of economic engagement. And I think that you know different countries will have their own thresholds, but I, I see that as a perfectly fair way of engaging with China. As long as China can be held to account, I think there's no problem with it. But if it can be made to respect that you know reciprocity in, in many cases and uh, ascribe to to local norms and laws. Yeah, the institute here, Dr. Brian Lee Crowley, our managing director, has called an adequate engagement, an adequate approach to China should be engagement, not submission, which I think mm. is a really nice way to phrase mm, it. Yeah. Okay, so moving from what you've described in China to what's been happening in India, perhaps I could put it in the context of an elephant parade at the door of the dragon. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we look at recent news coming from the subcontinent, Canadians have adequately been very concerned about this contest between India and Pakistan that just does not seem to go away. Sadly, much of the rubric in the academy, the elite, the media, the bureaucracy tends to be frozen in Canada about India, just considering it in the context of Pakistan, not in the context of China. So I'm very grateful for your your conversation this far. But the context in the conflict with Pakistan has continued. It started with an attack on an Indian convoy in Kashmir, why don't you set the table a little bit for our listeners and describe to them what's been happening and should they be concerned about this escalating out of control? Sure. India and Pakistan were partitioned in 1947. And from the outset, there was this power disparity in, in India's favor. India was the larger country. It had, in some ways, more of the at least the human resources initially. And we saw really from the outset, from 1947 onwards, Pakistan using a pretty consistent 
strategy of trying to minimize that power disparity with India, which was basically uh, using a mil military provocation, often with some plausible deniability, thereby provoking an Indian response, and then you know exaggerating that Indian response in a way to invite international the international community to intervene, thereby mediating in, in Pakistan's favor. And initially, it was the United Nations. Um, in the 1960s, it was the Soviet Union that actually um, uh, held a summit between India and Pakistan in 1965. But more recently, it's been the United States primarily. And this is, uh, you know, there have been attempts at this. And this has happened even as the power disparity has increased further in India's favor, first after the bifurcation of Pakistan in 1971 uh, into Bangladesh and Pakistan. And then secondly, after India's economic growth, particularly after the 90s. You're describing a story that has had huge human toll. Yes. Like the partition of Bangladesh came at the expense of maybe 7 million lives. Yeah. The initial partition of India, Pakistan, yes. came at the toll of maybe 8 million lives. So, I mean, you're, you're glossing over some important parts of history. I don't mean to accuse yeah, you for, yeah, yeah. for being too empirical, but this is a, a, a major human dilemma. Yes, right, right. So, I mean, this, it, it has been a very um, messy, I mean, I, I'm, I'm yeah. sort of simplifying it significantly. Very nicely. Very nicely, but... but <laughs> Maybe neatly, but but uh, but I think this has been the the, the short story in some ways of, of India-Pakistan relations. We've the two things have changed on top of all of this. So one is the means of provocation have changed a little bit. So since the '90s, since the early '90s, we've seen a Pakistan employ terrorist groups, which have been protected and in many cases supported by elements of the Pakistani state, including the intelligence agencies and the Pakistan army. And this includes infiltration across a disputed line of control. The terrorists who do infiltrate benefit from cover fire provided by the Pakistan army. So it's not, it's, there is definitely the role of a state in this. It's an alliance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are proxy actors that have been used. Many of them were originally trained for the war in Afghanistan in the 1980s um, against the Soviet Red, Red Army, but have now been deployed since the early 90s against uh, India, initially in Kashmir, but also we've, we've seen in other parts of India as well, which is why we've had attacks in places like Mumbai um, in 2008. The other big change has been the nuclearization of the subcontinent. So this actually, even though both publicly, both India and Pakistan publicly declared their nuclear capability in 1998, they actually may have had that capability for about a decade or so before that. Incidentally, Pakistan benefited from Chinese nuclear assistance uh, after 1976. And so, you know, th these have fundamentally changed. Now, what, what does that mean? That means we've seen some pretty regular attacks against India. In recent years, they've been against military targets or, or law enforcement targets, police stations, paramilitary forces. Until 2013, they were against most more civilian targets. India, of course, feel, you know, feels like this is unacceptable, uh, has been trying to use both positive and negative levers to get to dissuade Pakistan from, from continuing this strategy, but is obviously limited by the fact that Pakistan is a nuclear weapons state. What we saw recently is um, India deploy for the first time since 1971 air power to do airstrikes against uh, what it said was a training facility of a, of a group. Um, this is pretty well documented, so that particular facility and how it's been used in Balakot, yeah. So that, that's pretty well known, and, and there are many Pakistani sources who've written about how it was a center for training suicide bombers who were deployed against Afghanistan, uh, against religious minorities in Pakistan, and against India as well. Against NATO allies and NATO efforts. In yeah, including, including NATO allies, yeah. In fact, the attack we saw on February 14th of this year in India was the first car bomb we've seen in, in Jammu and Kashmir for a long time and since the early 2000s. And um, I think there's uh, speculation, in very well-informed speculation, that the bomb making was actually uh, bore very similar hallmarks to the bombs, car bombs we've seen in Afghanistan as well. So there are some, some strong links there. So this, this is basically what's behind the latest tensions. We saw on February 26th, India do the airstrikes. The next day, we saw a response by Pakistan, which led to 
the shooting down of uh, at least one plane, uh, one Indian plane. And the pilot who survived was in Pakistani custody for about 48 hours. Uh, raided out by the Pakistani military against Geneva Conventions. Yeah, there was, but ultimately was released under great international pressure. Um, and so it, I know it has been portrayed sometimes as an act of altruism or, or goodwill, but I, I think it's quite clear that there was a great amount of pressure applied on Pakistan. I think the dust is still settling on this. We're not fully out of the woods, although since the release of the pilot, we have seen a bit of a calming of tensions, the return of ambassadors to the high commissioners to the two countries, for example. So I don't think we're fully out of the woods yet, but I think there are different ways of of looking at it. I think what India has shown is that it's willing to push the envelope a little bit in terms of retaliation. It attacked a site in Pakistan proper, not in a disputed territory, uh, which is a change. Uh, It used air power for the first time. It also got much more support from the international community than it has in the past. So I think many, uh, including the U.S. and others, have been quite still continuingly critical of Pakistan's support for terrorism. Well, you know, Pakistan has essentially become, would you agree, a client state of China economically? Uh, You know, obviously it's moving in that direction. I'm not sure it's there yet. The Chinese didn't seem to have that big of a problem with the Indian airstrikes in Balakot. Uh, China took a much more neutral stance, which under the circumstances was uh, seen as tilting again in favor of Pakistan. Um, Unlike, for example, uh, the US or or the French or the Australians and others who, while calling for a calming of tensions, kept on repeating the fact that Pakistan needs to clean up its act. Exactly. Canada did not follow court. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, you know Canada was observing uh, obser- observing developments as well. We're not fully out of the woods at this point of time, and uh, there will be, for example, uh, measures taken at the UN, including the UN Security Council, which I know Canada is hoping to get back onto, um, at the Financial Action Task Force, at other counterterrorism conventions as well. So I think you know the the, the role of the international community in in not just diffusing the present tensions but also trying to address this longer-term issue, which which has negative implications not just for India, but the international community at large. You know, countering violent extremism yeah. is one of the key areas of potential cooperation between Canada and India, whether it is the violent extremism of radicalized terrorist organizations that are operating inside India, challenging the security and safety of Indians, and coming at real cost to Indian military and law enforcement officials, as you've described in a, in a wonderful portrait here, There's also the question of radicalization that's happened outside of India. In Canada, we've had a large Punjabi Sikh constituency uh, that had come during the very difficult times of the early 80s uh, where pogroms had been happening. And for the last 20 years, by and large, that community here, animated by a very real and visceral pain that they felt as a result of the, the riots and the violence in Punjab and elsewhere, have been kind of outside of that process of reconciliation, which has been happening inside India over the last 20, 30 years. I'd be curious, you know, as Canadians and Canadian policymakers are looking to advance our shared security interests with India, whether it's countering violent extremism of the export terror variety of the state terror as state craft variety that Pakistan has been purveying, or collaborating on issues like the Khalistan issue, what would your guidance be for how that coordination, the collaboration, the cooperation between India and Canada can be? Uh, you know, it's a, a complicated question. Obviously, there is a complicated history there. Uh, you know, I think it, it surprises people, you know, putting in diaspora communities about what changes have occurred in their homeland. Uh, I mean, just to give a very different example, you know, the a lot of, um, say, Taiwanese and other Chinese who fled communist China, when they returned in the 80s and 90s, they were, you know, they were quite surprised at the, the changes that occurred, particularly economically there. So I think, you know, w- one of the things that to, to underscore is that there is a very painful history uh, in India to seek separatism. 
but that there has been a broad-based reconciliation. And that's one of the things that you know every major party in India, every major political party is, is on the same page about, uh, which is they don't want to see a return to an old era of, of violence, and, and they want to move forward from that. Now, obviously, a, a diaspora community hasn't been par- part of that process. You know, so I think some bridging, some, I don't know if there's an easy way to do this, but sort of trying to bridge that understanding that you know, while there, there is this difficult history in the past, that most people, at least in India, want to look into the future and, and you know, don't want to go back to that. And again, this is something that has very broad-based support, political support in India. So I think that it's sort of underscoring that and, and you know, more engagement with the diaspora may be a way of doing that, but it's not going to be easy. It's an interesting time that we're in, Dhruva, because we've got on one side the identity brokerage politics, the idea, the, the identities of whether they be radical Sikh separatism, whether they be radical political Islam, competing against the pro-ideas agenda of global trade and a rules-based international system. In, India has such a rich matrix of identities that it balances in a very vibrant democracy, sometimes imperfectly, but I don't mean to lecture, mm-hmm. I'm just... Curious, you know, from an Indian's perspective, in this realm of ideas and identity, do you think that Indian foreign policy in the road ahead will be more informed by the basis of a set of shared values, or will it continue to be strictly on the basis of specific interests? So it's actually a question I've been wrestling with a lot. And I have, uh, in fact, a paper out with the Brookings Institution as part of a series they produced recently called Democracy at Risk. Which is trying to, what I've tried to do is sort of inject uh, an Indian and a kind of non-Western way of looking at this. So, you know, the, I think the bottom line is there's some things that all democracies, some, some challenges that all democracies face today. And I kind of try and digest it in, in what I call the four I's, which are uh, identity, inequality, interference, and well, one more I, okay, I can't remember off the, off the top of my head, it'll come back to me. But, you know, I think the, these are some of the shared concerns that we all have. In India, the interference issue has been less of a concern. Um, I think it's been more pronounced in the West, uh, including in Canada. But, uh, you know, I think the identity issue is actually very interesting because there was this belief that as the world became more globalized, that it would become more cosmopolitan. And yet we've seen in different ways identity remains strong, in fact, stronger, whether it's in Canada, whether it's in Scotland and you know Britain, we saw this in Brexit, whether it's in the United States and, and you know, the issue, uh, some of the issues that, that drove Trump uh, to power. Uh, or indeed in, in a place like India, or, or in fact a country like Indonesia, for example, another pr- very vibrant democracy. But issues of religious identity and cultural identity are now predominant and, and are, are informing things like immigration debates. So that I think, you know, again, wh- while the circumstances are very different, and I try and identify different types of countries. So you have immigrant-heavy countries, which have, including Canada, which have more of a focus on individualism. But you have classical nation states, including in Europe, Japan, South Korea, which have always been where the nation has always been tied to the state. And they have a very different approach to issues like immigration, of course. Uh, And then you have kind of post-colonial democracies, India being one of them and the largest perhaps of them, where, where democracy has involved trying to reconcile individual rights with group and collective rights, uh, not always seamlessly. So the circumstance, I think we need to recognize that the circumstances are very different, but there is a common thread in terms of the, the predominance of identity over democratic politics today. So I think that that's one big area. I think issues of inequality is another area, and, and there's a lot of lessons to be learned as to how we address that in different ways. And then again, issues of interference as well. Uh, the fourth I will come back to me. No, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, one final question, and then yeah. I'll let you go. In the midst of this conflict between India and Pakistan, Susma Swaraj, the foreign minister of India, arrived in the United Arab Emirates at a meeting of the Organization for Islamic Cooperation, the OIC, where 
Muslim majority states around the world convene. Canada has a representative that is dispatched there. Pakistan protested it by boycotting the meeting. And yet here is this woman who represents what ostensibly is a Hindu nationalist government that had been welcomed with open arms by a Gulf nation to the central meeting point in new multilateralism for Islamic cooperation. What's your take on what that means? You know, I think it's a natural outgrowth of a very fast-changing relationship that India has had is having with the particularly the GCC countries, led by the UAE and Saudi Arabia, to a lesser degree Qatar. So, so I think this is a sort of a new reality. This it's an older relationship, but it's largely been based on a very large Indian migrant diaspora in in the Gulf. Nine million people, Indians who work there, uh, on a, sometimes on a seasonal basis. India is the, the G20 economy that's the second most dependent on Middle Eastern oil exports. So there's been an energy relationship, and there's been an old security relationship, including on some counterterrorism issues. That relationship is now diversifying a little bit. There are new elements, including a large number of Indian students in places like Saudi Arabia, Indian investments in the tech sector in in the Gulf, and also you know uh, investment by the Saudis and others in India. Um, there's also a big trading relationship. Dubai is a big port for uh, transshipment to India. Um, so I think uh, her presence there is indicative of that shift that's taking place, and and that sh- and that's only accelerated in the last few years under quite paradoxically, what, what is perceived as a, to be a Hindu nationalist government in India. So um, again, I think that's the culmination of that. It does put pay to a few kind of myths. Is, uh, you know, at the same time, Pakistan foreign minister was saying that there needs to be greater dialogue with India, and yet he boycotts the first opportunity there is to, to have such a dialogue with, with India. So I think that that's indicative of the sort of change that is taking place in attitudes towards India and Pakistan, that this something like that could happen at this point of time. What I love about this definition of the Indo-Pacific is that it includes the Indian Ocean, mm-hmm. which I think you'll, uh, you might correct me, uh, during the British Raj, the British administration of the Middle East had flown from Mumbai. Yes, right. Yeah. Uh, which is a fascinating delegation. Yeah. They didn't have, they, they couldn't iPhone and iMessage each other yeah. back in that yeah, day, right. how they yeah. organized their global empire. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting, you know, how much, you know, places like Aden and Singapore, um, you know, as far flung as that, were actually governed from India by the British. So um, in, in many ways, the Indo-Pacific is a very natural geography. Um, you know, you have these old trading links from Baghdad to Nagasaki, um, pre-colonialism, pre-European colonialism. And then during the colonial period, you also had similar links. So, you know, Indian forces were deployed by the British against China in Beijing and to put down the Boxer Rebellion, you know. So you have these old links. Um, of Tibet. Yeah, yeah, but now we're seeing uh, in some ways a return to, you know, in, in some ways we may look at the Asia-Pacific era, which was basically from the, the 1960s, early 60s to the mid-90s, uh, to the Asian financial crisis, as a bit of an aberration, where you had these sort of artificial sub-regions in, in what we now think of as the Indo-Pacific. So in some ways we're seeing a reversion to uh, a reality that existed before. Dhruva Jaishankar, a tour de force of the world from an Indian perspective. I'm going to have some fun. Dhruva Jaishankar Shuvale Majumdar. Yeah. I challenge any of our listeners to try and say that three times <laughs> as quickly as they can. Uh, Dhruva, I can't thank you enough for being here with us today. I have a hope that the McDonald Laurie Institute will be able to collaborate with you in the road ahead. Why don't I invite you now to come back after Indian elections so that we can have a discussion about what you know the outcome of that will be in May for how the world needs to look at the Indo-Pacific. Thank you for being in Ottawa. Thanks. Uh, my name is Shuvaloy Majumdar, joined by Dhruva Jaishankar of the Brookings, India. I'm signing off now for the McDonald Laurie Institute. Pod bless Canada. Tune in for more later.